Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Luskarton. Today, I'm talking with Andrew Reeson, CEO and co-founder of HERD. Andrew received his Bachelor of Business Administration, Accounting and Finance from Gonzaga University, and then joined PricewaterhouseCoopers, where he worked on newer ventures for the company. Ultimately, he and his co-founder, Victoria, started Herd Mental Health in 2019. And that company works to service the accounting needs of mental health providers across the country. Whether it's accounting, bookkeeping, and tax preparation, they're taking care of all of it. And I'm so I'm really excited to talk with Andrew today about how this all gets done and what we can learn about these processes as providers. You know, we don't often get the business side of psychology. And today we're going to jump into it. And I'm really, really excited. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I couldn't be uh, couldn't be more excited to be here and nerd out on all things accounting with you. Fantastic. And I, I love this stuff too, because like I was saying in the intro, there are such limited educational opportunities for us as psychologists to chew on this stuff. And I think when we do the business side well, Ultimately, we're helping our clients more effectively, too. It makes us more sustainable in our businesses as well and planful about the future. So I'm ready. I'm, I'm game. I can't wait to, to jump into this with you. You know, I, I like to say that not a, not a single day in my graduate education was focused on the business of psychology, much less the taxes, the legal side of things. You know, when we first get started, we're like eager to to jump in. Like we, we're graduated, we we got our license finally. We've we finally got it. We're, we're we're through the golden gates, and and boom, it's like, how do I get my first clients? Well, I'm ready. I'm I'm eager. But how do we do this from the business side? What what does that mean for us as we get started? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think the biggest thing that I always like to to bang the drum on is like not seeking perfection when you do make that transition out of academia into, um, you know, operating in an independent practice setting, even if it is just seeing a couple of clients on the side, it's going to take time to, to build the perfect business processes. It's going to take time to build your streamlined operations on the back end. And you're at the point where you're coming out and probably doing it on your own for the first time. And you were probably working with a supervisor before, and it's already scary yeah. enough as it is to be out there. Um, you know, focus on getting yourself grounded in the, you know, the clinical work and the interactions with the clients and running the clinical side of your business. I mean, simply speaking, if you are, you know, just moving into private practice or independent practice, like you are going to be structured as a sole proprietor in the eyes mm -hmm. of the, the IRS, even if you don't set up a separate tax ID or get a separate business bank account or do your bookkeeping. And it's okay if you don't get it perfect right away. Um, the IRS will find their way back to you to make sure that they get their their uh, uh, their their taxes. But um, in the context of you know best practices and you know jumping out on your own, you know set up a business bank account or so get your tax ID. Set up mm -hmm. a business bank account, and while you're doing that, you're probably going to have a lot of expenses that you're trying to keep track of. You know maybe you're starting to run an office and you've started paying for software. And you've started buying furniture for your you know, office space as well, just keep track of those expenses in a spreadsheet. And making that jump, don't make the barrier too high for yourself or you have to do everything perfect right away. Mm -hmm. I think that, that 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 is the perfect word to look out for, right? Like perfect 
can be such a an enemy in this process. And and I really appreciate in in some ways giving us the like permission to like getting started is is critical. And and you're going to be able to figure some of this stuff on the go. And if you need help, it exists. Um, but I think about what what you're outlining. You know, it sounds like reaching out to the IRS and there are some online processes to be able to get a tax ID or an EIN through the IRS, even if you're a sole proprietor. And that way you remove things like your social security number. But, and then it sounds like opening up like a a business checking account or something like that. I mean, as you detail those steps, how much are we looking? What are the costs associated with doing those things? Yeah. So, and and that's the biggest thing as well, especially in the the part of your practice where you're just getting started. And I mean, that's what I often tell folks if I'm doing consults um, mm-hmm. for new folks coming in is like, Hey, you're just getting started. You probably don't need her just yet. Like uh-huh. focus on getting that grounding underneath you. And um, I think there's like something to be said about like going through the process and doing it yourself. That really gives you a comprehensive understanding and look into your practice. Um, and of course there's a large benefit of working with a professional, but when you think (laughs) about the costs associated with getting started, there's no cost associated with getting a separate tax ID. And as you said, to enable yourself to separate yourself from your personal identification, most bank accounts are, you know, typically no more than, you know, $30 per month at most to set up a business checking account and have a separate savings account with them. Um, it costs absolutely nothing to open up a Google Sheets and just keep track of all of the expenses that feel like business expenses. And I think the, the point to hammer home there is if it looks like a business expense, it feels like a business expense and it smells like a business expense write that down and leave Mm -hmm. it up to the discretion of an accountant to help you determine whether or not that's something that you're going to be able to write off. And if that's an expense that you should transition over to that business bank account, when you do finally get yourself set up and underway with that business bank account, Um, there's nothing worse than getting to the end of your first year and being like, oh crap, like where were the receipts for this? Or, you know, I think I spent money on that. Or like, I thought Mm -hmm. I purchased that, Um, you know, just keep track of everything and be uh you know, be a little bit maniacal as it relates Mm -hmm. to to documentation, which I know clinicians are very good at as is. Right. Sure. Yeah. But, but this is just another form of that documentation. So keeping the receipts, storing things in a Google sheet or an Excel file, something where you can have that spreadsheet and refer back to it. That's going to be really essential in this, this start. Um, That's what I'm picking up on. Now I want to pick at that. The things that feel like deductions. I love that phrase, but it's also got me thinking about um, your marketing guru, Michael Fulweiler, who has just posted, I believe today, uh, not to date this episode, but today that I saw it around cardigans. Okay, so are the clothes that I wear, uh, if I get my my nice blazer for session because it makes me look like a psychologist, is that a deduction? It felt like it. It felt like a business thing. What about things like that? Um, well, <laughs> this is a great question. That's so funny. Um, Michael loves his commentary on notes and cardigans. And so I love that. Um, okay, cool. As it relates to writing off something that might perceivably be a uniform in the course of your business, you'll be pretty hard pressed as a clinician to, uh, in the eyes of the IRS, uh, prove to them that the cardigan that you have purchased is only for a specific use in the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And as it relates to uniform, the codification is pretty clear that you cannot do your business without this uniform. So if you're a, you know, 
an independent medical professional and you need scrubs or you're a, a, a grocery or not a grocery truck, but a, um, a garbage truck driver and you need a specific mm-hmm. uniform and identifier or you're a construction worker, like those are specific uniforms that you need. Um, you know, you may be able to tell me the story otherwise that a uh, cardigan uh-huh. is absolutely necessary in the course of your work, but, uh, that might be a little harder in the eyes of the IRS. I, I can't say that I ever learned anything <laughs> about the necessity of the cardigan in graduate school, but, but I really appreciate the answer too, which is that it's gotta be specifically for work. And, um, you know, so if, if it were scrubs, if we were in a hospital setting as a psychologist, yeah, that would be, but the, the cardigan to sit on the, the therapy chair is not necessarily going to be that business expense, but in all seriousness, I want to, I want to hear more from you in, in some ways, Andrew, because even though I'm a psychologist and I've lived the, that experience of going into professional practice for myself, I'm kind of curious, what do other mental health providers struggle with? What are their common concerns as they get started? Yeah, I will provide some context on those. And I'd love to hear about your experience going in and like, what were the challenges for you and getting things set up as well? Um, I think some of the most common things that we see are, holy cow, what type of business entity should I be? Mm -hmm. I'm in California. I just learned that I, you know, can't be an LLC. How do I set up a professional Mm -hmm. corporation? Oh, dang, there's like a specific naming convention that I have to have. And then, Mm -hmm. oh, if I'm a professional corporation, I'm taxed a specific way. And so that is a big first question because a lot of folks, when they think about being a business, they don't think about a sole proprietor or a formalized business entity. It's like, oh, I know I need to set up an LLC or a a specific type of business. And it's not necessarily true, but every individual state has their own specific laws, their own digital pathways and their own timelines and their own naming conventions around how you can structure that business. And so Mm -hmm. working with a legal professional to get that right business entity set up absolutely do that and have that conversation. We have a partnership with LegalZoom that makes it a little bit easier. But again, some states are nuanced and have more complexity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another common challenge that we see is the commingling of personal Mm -hmm. and business expenses. And again, uh, taking a step back here, perfection is um, something that we can try to aim towards, but we don't have to hold ourselves accountable to that. Um, When you're first getting started, you're inevitably going to have expenses in your personal accounts as Mm -hmm. you're setting up that business checking account. Um, But as soon as you have that business checking account set up, make sure that the expenses that are associated with your practice are running through that business bank account and make sure that the income that you are earning in your practice is associated with the tax ID that is associated Mm -hmm. with your business entity in that bank account. Um, you don't want to get to the end of the year and find out that some of my income was apportioned to uh, my social security number. Some of it was apportioned to a tax ID. And then, oh, I don't know where any of my expenses are. And such a big step is separating mm-hmm. those personal and business expenses towards building that good practice. The next piece, I know I talked a lot about um, spreadsheets and that being a good starting place, but mm-hmm. I'm a software person. I've been building accounting software for a long time. And I know just from a best practice standpoint, having your business bank accounts connect to a software platform. So all of the income and all of the expenses are pulling through to get a real-time look at where your business is at is incredibly important. And then there's one thing, I think the other piece as well, there's um, many things, but the other piece is how the heck do I pay myself? We have a lot of folks that will come on to herd and they'll be four months into their practice and they'll be like, Oh my gosh, like, I have $30,000 in my bank account. I need to pay myself. I have to cover rent. Like I don't Mm -hmm. want to screw something up and then get arrested by the IRS. 
not going to get arrested by the IRS, uh, maybe a tax bill, but no arrest. Mm -hmm. um, but getting a, a structure or a process in place for how do I set aside money for an owner's draw or an owner's distribution? How do I think about the percentage of my income that I should set aside for taxes in that separate savings account? And oh, mm -hmm. if I want to plan for something like PTO or I want to think through something like retirement, how much should I think about setting aside there? And so building that uh, pay structure can be really challenging at the get-go. Right. And obviously there's some nuance or specificity to who you are as a tax individual. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the co-mingling uh, to, let's see if I got this right. The co-mingling would be if I have my personal checking account, for instance, and I'm making charges from that personal checking account for business expenses and or receiving income that is business related into that account directly, right? Yep, that's exactly right. And let's say that I'm just a sole proprietor. I'm just getting started and I'm I'm trying to heed your advice and and you know I I try to establish both but I I start getting I are I'm like having trouble getting everything switched over. The stuff is still going in the personal account. What happens then or do I have to worry about that? How do I go back and change this? Yeah, so great question. So I think the, the big thing that's going to happen is like legally, you're not going to be in any sort of um, bad position um, from a time perspective and a, a pulling your hair out perspective as you go to file your tax return at the end of the year, uh -huh. it might feel a little bit different. And so mm -hmm. totally fine if you have that crossover between business and personal, especially if you're a social you or if you're operating with a social security number, there's mm -hmm. no expectation that they have to be separate. Um, but it is a best practice for you. And so if you do have that crossover between business and personal, basically what that looks like is at the end of the year, you know, whether I'm working with a tax accountant or, you know, whether I decided that I wanted to file the return myself, what I'm doing is separating out the expenses and adding them back to the profit and loss to understand how much am I able to write off that was associated with my business? And then what was that mm -hmm. income that's attributable to my business? So getting mm -hmm. a grasp of what that full picture looks like. And then the risk of that, of course, is, oh gosh, I missed something. Right, right. And Andrew, being that, that I have been in practice for a couple of years, I, I'm like, I'm so um, appreciative of what you're sharing with us now, because when I first started, I didn't really get what the advantage would be of, of being a sole proprietor and having to have things separated. But then I look through my transaction log and I'm like a thousand dollars for daycare, you know, uh, this, this other personal expense for going grocery shopping. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, then I have to find the transaction, which is the income for the business, or I have to find the transaction. And at very least, it's it just is so time consuming. So separating this thing out can actually save us a ton of time in the process. Yeah, absolutely. That's a yeah. I think that's the perfect reflection. Um, but I want to dig in more. You mentioned that like, what are we? What are we trying to establish? What's our entity? Is one of the biggest questions that people people have, right? And uh, you know, I I also want to recognize that you spoke with us for a webinar recently and and talked about some of these these options. But I I want to spend a little bit of time on the podcast in case people haven't listened to the webinar to to hear more about what are our options and and I want to kind of if if nothing else, I want to spend the time going through an example with you. Okay. So there are a lot of different um options that it seems like we can choose as an entity. But let's say I'm I'm starting a professional practice. It's going to be me at first, but I have hopes of maybe building something. I, I want to be more than just me. I, I want it to be, 
you know, maybe a few providers and, and maybe, you know, I'm able to offer people benefits because I, I really appreciate the, the justice component of that, right? Like I, I want to be able to provide for people that work for me. How, how do we go about that? What would that process even look like? Awesome. So we want to set up a new group practice. We're probably a sole proprietor at this point. We haven't made any decisions about what type of business entity that we should structure and I do want to caveat that I'm not a legal professional, but um, I will provide the guidance per the interactions with many, many clinicians going through this process. So um, let's say you're a sole proprietor. When you are looking to set up a group practice, you could set up a separate tax ID and then bring employees into that group practice. And you could do mm -hmm. it that way. Would that be the recommendation with potential legal exposure or potential right. legal risk that might come from that? No, probably not. Um, but will a legal entity that is set up with licensed professionals protect you from any sort of malpractice or any and all malpractice? No, but that's why we have malpractice insurance and professional right. liability insurance. And so that first step would be determining what is the best type of business entity for me. And that starts in a state specific way. And so recommend going to your secretary of state, having a conversation with them or having a conversation with a legal professional or leveraging something like LegalZoom and saying, hey, I'm in this specific state. This is the type of professional I am. What are the considerations that I need to have? And from there, you'll have a clear understanding. And so let's talk about it in the context of California. Um, let's say you were you know, deciding that you wanted to open up a, a, you know, a new business entity. In California, as a licensed professional, you have to set up a professional corporation. And so you would go to the Secretary of State. They have a digital pathway on their website. You would register that business and a few days later you'd get a notice back from them saying hey great the business is formed in this state at that point you file with them what's called a statement of information and that's something that you're going to file year after year after mm -hmm. year after year and that's you and it's called something a little different in every state but that is you going back to the state and saying hey here's who who's a part of the business here's how you can get a hold of me and here's what's changed over the year Mm -hmm. That next piece, once you filed the statement of information, is going and getting that tax ID. And so you'd get a separate tax ID that's associated with this new business entity. And this is the point where you're probably making the determination, hey, you know, I've set up an LLC or a, a professional corp. I want to be taxed as a C corp or an S corporation, because those are the two options for a professional corporation. You decide, mm -hmm. hey, it's best for my business to structure myself as an S corporation because there's some tax savings there. And so now you have that tax ID, that next step, you file what is called the small business election to be taxed as an S corporation or the form 2553. And then that next step would be setting up payroll. And so you've determined, hey, have an awesome client flow in my practice. I'm growing a lot. I know I can expand this. Okay, I'm going to go ahead now that I'm an S corp, set up payroll, and I'm going to onboard these employees onto payroll. Mm -hmm. So whether it's you know, Gusto or the accounting that we, the accounting software we offer through Herd, through Gusto or ADP or Paychex, there's a number of different options that you can take advantage of. And a lot of these options as it relates to benefits, they will give you a number of different ways that you can consider paying professionals. And so uh, many different clinicians will operate on a fee split and they'll have folks right. that are contractors or W-2 employees. And there's different considerations as it relates to that. Some folks will pay a flat base, you know, base fee or wages and pay a bonus on a monthly basis based on how many sessions that they have. And so 
that is a determination for you as a business owner as to what's best for you in your practice and to your point, um, hopefully what's uh, in the best interest of the clinicians that you're bringing on board and working with as well. Um, as it relates to benefits, though, things like health insurance and things like retirement accounts, one of the things that I love so much about Gusto is that they have uh, integrated partners to set up health insurance for your employees. And so they'll do a lot of the legwork to get you registered. And then they also have, you know, other partners like guideline to where you can set up a sole or set up a retirement account that other employees can contribute to on their own, um, whether or not you're matching that. And so uh, finding that right payroll provider to kind of consolidate a lot of those actions will oftentimes be really helpful, especially if you're kind of in those early days and those kind of cost differences won't be that marginal for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's that's helpful to better understand. And there are so many decision, dis, like yeah. pivot points, or like so many forks in the road as as a provider, as a professional, to to sort of navigate. And I can imagine, hey, it's really important to be talking to to tax and legal professionals along the way, especially if you're getting others involved into the mix too, because then you're talking about state benefits and and legal requirements. But I also want to clarify, Andrew. It sounds like we've got to recognize like, okay, so we've got the IRS, the national level for taxes and and managing a company or or your entity, but we've also got that state level too, seemingly. And I, I hear you, you're choosing California and I'm in the state of Wisconsin right now where, you know, there's less of the PC or the professional corporation from what I know and more of like, just like straight LLCs and and so, yeah, it sounds like it's really going to determine uh, or be determined by where you're at. Yeah, 100%. And I think the other layer to that as well, outside of taxes, is business registration. And is mm-hmm. there in your specific state, based on the you know business entity or tax entity type that you've elected to be taxed as, is there a franchise tax associated with mm-hmm. the S-Corp that you're filing at the end of the year? And okay, we have this franchise tax. What time of the year do we need to file that? And okay, I need to have a business license to operate in this specific specific county. Great. How often do I need to, to, to uh, renew that or think about that? And so it brings up a great point. There's so many different uh, legal tax and compliance touch points throughout the year when you're getting started and moving into practice. And I'd love to hear from you how you actually approach mm-hmm. this, but like, building a compliance calendar and getting those specific dates on the calendar and websites on your calendar as well. So you have an understanding and can kind of look forward to that. Um, we found can be often pretty helpful for folks and in knowing what's coming up. So there are no surprises and people don't miss anything. How do you kind of get set up or like stay on top of all of those things in the get-go? I mean, what you're describing sounds like so much more detailed and amazing. So you got to send that my way, but uh, in, in many ways, uh, I, I feel like um, it's just been this constant work in progress. Andrew, when you de- detail the, the processes, I, th- I think to myself, okay, I, w- I went through that. But even when you do, I'm like so overwhelmed because I never, I never went from zero to 60. It was always like, okay, zero to five, five to 10, 10 to 15. So my zero to five, okay. Uh, today I'm going to go to IRS and I'm going to figure out like what entity, you know, what, what do I, what number, how do I request that number? Okay. I got the number. 
You know, it never went from like, okay, today I'm I'm gonna build this thing. The ship is gonna sail today. The the ship was being built at, over such a long period of time, so that even when I think about what you're detailing about building out some of that stuff, I'm like, whoa, that can feel really overwhelming. Um, and yet, uh, to your to your point from the very outset, like, hey, this isn't about perfect. This is about building something, and there're gonna be lots of lessons. Oh my gosh, a lot of lessons in the process. So to your point about the calendar, I don't maintain a compliance calendar because I don't have employees per se, but I, I have calendars where I'm thinking, okay, this is a tax uh, filing deadline, or this is a, a quarterly filing for my estimated payment. So yeah, to your point, like I had to sort of piecemeal and snap on, oh, I need to do that. Okay, I'll add that to the calendar. So it's been such a work in progress, to be honest. Yeah. And it's, I love the framing that you have of like, I just went zero to five and I piecemealed it and I stepped it together. And it sounds like um, going over the net here, you did a lot of this yourself at the, the get-go of doing the research and trying to figure out what are the places that you need to go. And I think there's obviously a benefit to that. Did you work with professionals at all along the, along the journey? You know, I, it's it one of the yeah, I borrow a quote from uh, the late Donald Rumsfeld, uh, at, where I say, I, di I didn't know what I didn't know. I don't know what I don't know, right? And he he was saying that about a very different context, but but I think the phrase holds true here. It's like, I didn't know what I didn't know, but I was really eager to, to try to learn more. So yeah, you're right. I, I was trying to do it yourself. Here and there, I'd, I'd consult with uh, CPAs or um, lawyers on a per hour fee yeah. basis. But, you know, in some ways I'd be like, oh, I, I, that answer didn't give me everything I needed. And I would be like, oh gosh, like, okay, get me started. But it, it was a real process and it was really challenging. So, you know, in some ways I, I can see the, the advantages of, of, of knowing more by learning and doing it firsthand. And at the same point, I can, I can see the advantages of having help along the way and feeling like, whoa, this is a really robust secure process and I've got people I can trust. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think for everybody, the, the process is different and what's right for them is different. Right. And so, um, no specific specificity on perspective here. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think the thing, and you probably experienced this and I certainly have in just building herd as yeah. like the, from a timeline standpoint, like it, it sounds really clean of us talking through each of these individual steps. Like you do this and you do that right. and then you're good. But like, holy smokes, like a lot of times, like people will file the S corp election and then they don't hear back for nine months or they never hear mm -hmm. back and you'll set up a business entity. And, you know, in X state, it takes 30 days to hear back in this state, it takes five days to hear back. And so you're trying to piece together how to accomplish all of these steps. And uh, you're reliant on all of these third parties to accomplish your goals in a lot of these cases. And that can be really challenging and overwhelming and mm -hmm. you'll receive scary notices. And again, like getting back to that point of like, it's going to be a little messy throughout the process. Like mm -hmm. there's no supremely buttoned up way that it's going to be um, perfect from end to end throughout that process. Mm -hmm. In some ways, Andrew, I think I embraced that. And I think I, I've, consulted with and talked with a number of providers who, even if they didn't enjoy this stuff, they, they recognized that this was an area where they were going to continue learning. And 
uh, I know with my colleagues, like we chose to go to graduate school to keep learning. I mean, a foundational value for many of my colleagues, right, is, is that desire to, to keep learning, to keep building. And so in many ways, when you, you know, talk through that, that's, that's what resonates with me is like, this is an area where we can keep building, keep learning. I, I think about where I was before I went into professional practice and I was in academia and I was working as a professor and before that in a, in a university health center. And, and when I left the academic environment, oh my gosh, like it wasn't just the setting up of entities and, and the business. What I was also thinking about was how my perspective changed on our hourly rates. Yeah. So when I was in graduate school, and I was cognizant or I would look up people in the community and be like, what do they charge? And I would be flabbergasted. This was before radical inflation um, in recent <laughs> years. Uh, people would be charging $125, $150 an hour. And I was like, whoa, that seems like so much money. I just can't, that's, I, I can't fathom. I didn't grow up with that kind of money in my family. I, I just couldn't fathom making that much money in an hour's time. But then when I made this transition from that academic context to professional practice, I recognized, oh, wow, wait a second. Like my health and life insurance was super subsidized, basically almost free for like life insurance. I had a 403B retirement plan because I was part of a public school, a public education facility, which is similar to a 401k. You know, I had the state match for the retirement program. I had this vesting, vesting of, of my match uh, that was basically double what I put into it. Um, and so while my pay was lower, technically, there were all these benefits. So when I think about this transition into private practice, it's not just the, the entities or the, the, the legal kind of jargon that we have to sift through and you're so helpful about having, you know, navigating through it with, with us. But it's also like, okay, so what about our futures? What about 20 years from now, 30 years from now? If I'm in private practice until I'm in my mid 60s, I've got decades here. Yeah. And, and yet I don't have any of the kind of organizational benefits. Mm. So what can providers do to mimic some of these that's really interesting. I mean, it's resonating with, with me a lot. Um, that's something I saw with my partner as well. Um, yeah, I think it's really, and I think the, one of the things that like the, the session fee thing really like sat with me and I had that in my mind while you were talking through that is like, we see that oftentimes with folks and it is entirely under your own volition and decision-making as to how you want to, um, charge for yourself. But oftentimes one of the things that we've seen um, is if people are taking cash pay, they typically undervalue themselves. And what that has an impact on is um, they're unable to serve the sliding scale sessions that they would like to be able to serve as well and mm -hmm. not valuing themselves in the way that they um, should be valued for the academic experience that they have had and the experiences that they've had in their private practice. And so um, I think one of the things that we've always seen when people do uh, change their fees, especially for folks that are able to pay, that do have that income to be able to pay for cash pay is um, oftentimes it doesn't have an impact on clients and they're excited to be able to continue supporting mm -hmm. the clinician as well. And so that's one piece that I wanted to think about. And then the kind of longer term vision. Um, yeah, it's really hard because you're coming out and you don't have 
the health benefits and you don't have a 403B and how do you set that up? And maybe you don't have a partner. So you have to, um, you know, go look at the national level for a program around that, or, you know, try to identify a specific program um, within a larger organization that might be able to support you and get lower costs and then planning for retirement. It can be really challenging. Um, and I don't think I have the perfect answer for that as well, but a framing that I can provide around that is doing a work back and whether this is having a conversation with a professional, but understand really in the way that you were framing it, it's kind of how it was like piecing out in my mind or the puzzle pieces were like, okay, I had this piece that I hadn't you know, necessarily taken into consideration. I had this piece that I hadn't necessarily taken into consideration. And when you think back into setting the goals for your practice and what income should look like and what that ultimate profit that you're looking to get to is, get a full sense and map out and budget. Okay, not only like is simple practice an expense and, you know, the trust liability insurance, but, oh, holy cow, like business is personal for me and personal is business. What am I going to have to pay for health insurance? You know, do I want to contribute to retirement? Okay, how much was I contributing to get back to that level of contribution? And of course, mm -hmm. there's tax savings opportunities through that. Right. But to get back to that level of contribution, what does my level of income need to be? And that's a great um, uh, process or framing when you're thinking through the transition of whether or not moving to independent practice is right for me. Think mm -hmm. through that and understand that there's probably also going to be uh, a bridge that you're gapping while you're setting up and scaling up your practice as well. But do you want to right. acknowledge it's a lot and it's a big transition and there's a lot of pieces there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that, Andrew. And yeah, I think you connected the dots there too. So I appreciate you doing that as well, which is that when we look at that 150, 200, $250 hourly rate, there's a lot that's going on behind the scenes now. One of the the biggest things that goes through my head too is like, I've only got one brain. You know, I've only got one brain, and and you know, so that my health it's so important, but it also is that like that premium in hourly rate is also reflective of the fact that you know like anything can happen today, tomorrow, and I'm not trying to be an existential psychotherapist right now, but, but, you know, there, there is a reflection that like, Hey, there is, there's a premium because I don't have the backstops of an organization or a, an academic context where there isn't paid time off necessarily. I don't have a bereavement leave. And so that's all got to be kind of in some ways accounted for in that rate is I'm thinking psychologically like, hey, I won't get paid this week that I take a vacation. So that $200 an hour rate is reflective of me allowing myself and my family to be able to take time off because that doesn't exist in the university health service where I get paid time off. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a, a scary transition. And we've written a ton of stuff around um, paid time off, but it's never perfect. And I always ask folks like, how did it feel when you were like going mm -hmm. through paid time off? And often the responses, I felt like I felt guilty. I felt like I should be oh. doing sessions. Like, I feel like, oh, like maybe if I just do sessions in the morning, but I think mm -hmm. to your point from a planning perspective, like on the front end and, you know, apportioning just a part of your income to account for the fact that there are some differences in how you're going to show up. And specifically from a vacation standpoint of a full-time job versus a an independent self-employed uh, uh, world that you might be living in now. And so 
taking a small percentage, whether it's, you know, five or 10%, knowing that you want to go on a big vacation this year mm-hmm. and feel guilt-free about it every week or every paycheck that's coming in will set you up for success. And, you know, I know my partner and I do that in certain ways, like, Hey, we have this separate savings account for, you know, purchasing a house for the family that we want to have in the future. Like, we don't ever think about that income. It sits there and then we know it's, you know, continuing to accrue and grow over time. And so it feels a heck of a lot better when we get to that place. And we know we've been doing that work and we don't have to kind of think through it in that specific moment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Andrew, I'm looking at our time and and just thinking it was such a pleasure to talk with you today as always. And um, you know, I'm thinking also to the audience that listened to this podcast today, if you're wondering or want to hear more of Andrew's tax tips and just thinking through some of these uh, formation questions and thriving in professional practice, the National Register had a fantastic webinar that is publicly available now. Um, So I really want to encourage you to check that out. But Andrew, for now, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and experience with us all. Um, Should people want to learn more about you or HERD, where can they go? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It was a blast. And I always appreciate the thoughtfulness in your questions as well. A couple different places. So if you're just getting going or you're not looking for full-time services, we have incredible guides and tools and calculators on our website. We have a Facebook community that's free where I spend a lot of my uh, time, uh, perhaps with a glass of wine in the evening, answering some Mm -hmm. tax questions. And then if you are looking for support to streamline your accounting processes or in getting those financial systems set up, you can go to joinherd.com and schedule a consult with one of our amazing folks to, to see if it is a good fit for you or not. Yeah. And Andrew, I just want to vouch a lot of the resources that you're talking about are free and publicly accessible to, to providers and they've come in handy for me too. So yeah, thank you for mentioning that and such a pleasure to, to have you on I'm Dr. Samuel Lescarton, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical, legal, or tax advice or continuing education.